Welcome back to It's Not About the Bunny, the Twin Peaks podcast that doesn't yet have an official tagline. We will be revealing the tagline halfway through season seven, after which things are kind of going to go off the rails. <laughs> I can get behind that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just how it's going to be. Um, so I thought this episode was good. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was directed by Caleb Deschanel. Uh, you might recognize that name. He is still married to Mary Jo Deschanel, who plays Mrs. Hayward on Twin Peaks, but he is also famously the father of Zoe and Emily. Mm -hmm. um, he's a pretty long time cinematographer and director uh, in Hollywood. He does a lot of TV. He did a bunch of Law and Orders. Uh, he will do a couple more episodes of Twin Peaks. He's, you know, one of those guys just works all the time. Right. Yeah. Didn't you uh, tell me that he's mostly a cinematographer? Yeah, that's my understanding. And he's been, you know, been nominated for a couple of Oscars for cinematography, like uh, in the 70s and 80s, I think. He did the cinematography for The Right Stuff, a bunch of other movies. Yeah. If I'm being honest, uh, while I think this episode was well directed, mm -hmm. the visual style didn't stand out to me the mm -hmm. way that some of the past episodes have like the last one directed by Leslie Lincoln Gladder. Yeah. There's some stuff that I found visually interesting that we'll talk about as we get into more of the themes of the episode though. Um, and I want to start off talking about something that has been recurring throughout this first season, but was really amped up in this one, which is a theme of surveillance. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there have been lots of scenes so far, not just in this episode of Audrey, you know, finding convenient secret passageways uh, to spy on people through little holes in the wall. Um, and she did that again in this episode. But there's lots of people spying, lots of people looking through windows, lots of people listening to secret recordings. Lots of people knowing other people's business, lots mm -hmm. of people listening in on telephone calls, following people, stuff like that. Um, and that all seems very deliberate that this episode was kind of all about that. So why don't we talk about that to start us off? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we can uh, talk about some of the specific instances. I think um, early on, we see that Leo was watching Bobby and Shelly. Mm -hmm. This is the reveal that he did not, in fact, get killed. Right. Uh, he was just shot in the arm, just yeah. a flesh wound, and mm -hmm. he's uh, apparently doing pretty good. Right, and this kind of continues the motif of the Johnson home as being a place where the boundaries between public and private are really porous, almost to the point of being non-existent. Mm -hmm. Shelly doesn't have any privacy in this house or any security. And that's really because of Leo. People are constantly like looking through the windows and cracks in the walls at her um, because the house itself is so like unstable. Yeah, but even, even more than that, it seems like Twin Peaks is a town where everyone knows. I won't say everything, because there are crucial things that they don't know. Yeah, I said this while we were watching the episode last night, but it's like it's a place where everyone knows 75% of everyone else's business, but it's always a different 75%. Right, yes. And of course, it is a kind of a stereotype of a small town that, um, you know, everyone is, um, everyone knows your business, everyone is constantly gossiping. 
there's no real privacy in a small town. Uh, I grew up in a smallish town and I can't say that, um, I mean, there's some truth to that. It's maybe not as extreme as in the fictional town of Twin Peaks. Right. But, uh, you know, one example later on, uh, this is not surveillance, but just uh, this kind of um, general knowledge mm-hmm. uh, that goes around a small town is when um, Josie reveals right. that she was, uh, she reveals to Harry Truman that mm-hmm. she was uh, spying on Ben Horn and Catherine. Yes, and that is surveillance. but Which happened in a previous episode, but... Um, she she says to Harry that they are having an affair. Mm-hmm. When Harry relates this to Cooper, yeah, he, he says, says that everyone knows, and this. it's been going on for years, and everybody knows, right? And I thought that was kind of funny uh, because it's presented to us as this great clue, and there is some more information Josie gives uh, mm-hmm. specifically about the plot to burn down the mill. That's very important, and we'll get back. We'll come back to that, but mm-hmm. um, it's funny that this, yeah, what's presented to us is. Um, you know, another part of the mystery turns out to be common knowledge in Twin Peaks. And that's yes. actually a running theme in this first episode as, um, you know, we keep learning these details about Laura's, you know, her dark side mm-hmm. and then finding out that pretty much everyone knew yeah, all of those things. Or everybody knew a piece, a piece of, of those things. Yeah. Um, and yeah. remember in a previous episode where... Uh, Audrey says to Donna, Laura was wild. She does say it like it's common knowledge. Like right. she wasn't just a nice homecoming queen and everybody everybody knew it. Right. So it might be important to distinguish between the fake secrets of Twin Peaks that everyone knows about mm-hmm. and the real secrets that are, in fact, Im- important pieces of information. Yes. Uh, one of them is the plot. Mm-hmm to burn down the mill yes which is revealed to cooper mm-hmm. in this episode mm-hmm. and yet he doesn't really do anything I do about believe it that in the next episode the mill mm-hmm. burns down yep mm-hmm. um, nobody's protecting the mill here this is another thing i want to come back to is uh how effective is cooper yeah here? let's let's come back to that because there are a number of ways he's shown to not be right but um yeah, to, to talk more about just surveillance, obviously one of the big ones is the uh, Cracker Jack sting operation that um, James and Donna and Maddie pull mm-hmm. on Dr. Jacoby. Um, the first is, of course, uh, it starts off with them listening to the tapes that Laura made for him, mm-hmm. Um which is obviously, you know, Laura's dead now and they're trying to avenge her, but it is a, an invasion of her privacy that I don't think is meaningless just because she's not around anymore to be offended by it. Um, and then at the end of the episode, they disguise Maddie as Laura, mm-hmm. call Jacoby and, you know, send a video um, with proof of life right. to him. And... Um, Bobby follows the group and spies on them. And then you can also see Leland who followed Maddie out of the house, uh, watching Bobby, watching them. Well, yeah, to be clear, we don't know that it's Leland in this episode. No. And it might still be ambiguous. I forget exactly Mm -hmm. um, 
because we know that Jacoby is going out yes. to the gazebo. Right. Um, but I don't think he's there yet. I think no. it's Leland. But... No, because we see him come out of his apartment mm -hmm. building after. Right. So it's Leland, but you know we, we're not supposed to know that yet mm -hmm. um but and because it's shot with first person yes um with the camera view standing in for the view of whoever it is mm -hmm. um and it's it's very scary there's uh yes it's one of a couple of kind of horror movie elements here it yes. reminded me uh really reminded me of the great 1970s slasher black christmas mm -hmm. yeah i agree yeah, you that know. movie has a lot of uh, killer POV shots. Right, yeah. and it's even you know I think it's a it's kind of a shaky handheld mm -hmm. to be extra spooky. Yes, I even I may have just been having flashbacks to Black Christmas uh, because that's a really memorable film. But I could almost swear that in one of those POV shots in this episode, mm -hmm. we heard some breathing. Yeah, and, I don't know. and it almost makes me wonder whether it's deliberate because I've been thinking about this and Black Christmas, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it is very much like Twin Peaks in that it's about violence within a safe place or yes. a place that is presumed to be safe. And it's about the violation of boundaries within that place. And one of the other things is that I, this is destroyed by the sequels, which shouldn't be talked about, but... The ending of Black Christmas is extremely ambiguous in terms of who the killer is supposed to be and whether the killer has actually been found and defeated. It's really unclear. Um, and that makes the movie very unsettling. And I think, yeah, that may have been what they were going for, at least at this point, that kind of unsettling feeling of not really knowing what you're seeing and not really knowing who's responsible for what. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about the similarities uh, between Twin Peaks and Black Christmas before. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had that one connection in my sure. mind. But well, yeah, it, at the end of Black Christmas, we're basically spoiling Black yeah, Christmas. Yeah, it's fine. You should see it though. It's really good. The original one. There's been a remake. It's trash. The original one in the 1970s. Right. Uh, what's the name of the director? Because he has the Bob craziest. Bob Clark. Bob Clark, and he does the have best the craziest of any director. Right. He did like Porky's, I think. Well, like... he did Black Christmas and um, A Christmas Story. Yes. Right. So yeah. that's like two opposite ends right. of the spectrum and Porky's. Yeah, the two genders. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, Black Christmas is a great movie, but yeah, I think that whether it was intentional or not, it is interesting that at the end of that movie, um, I mean, that mo that movie is a kind of mystery. Mm -hmm. It's almost more of a thriller yes. than a slasher since the slasher didn't exist. Um, it So it's, they're trying to figure out who is killing these girls at the sorority house mm -hmm. and possibly killing other people throughout the town. And then uh, they believe that they have, that the killer was found mm -hmm. um, and uh, that uh, he's apprehended essentially. Right. Um, and, and yet the danger remains. And that mm -hmm. is kind of how uh, the mystery of Twin Peaks wraps up. Right. In that, the in that Leland mm -hmm. 
is discovered to be the killer. Yes, and dies. And yet... Bob is still out there. Bob is still out there. Right. And at that point, Albert says, maybe Bob is just the evil that men do. And maybe that's the point of both stories, that maybe the individual predator was taken away. And the the guy who is sort of revealed to be the killer in Black Christmas is unquestionably a bad guy and a predator. But violence against women and girls isn't going away. It's kind of ambient. It's just part of the culture. Right. That's the scary thing about the end of Black Christmas. And I really didn't expect to talk this much about Black Christmas. We'll do a special episode on Black Christmas. But it's so unnerving. Yes. Like you said, because there is such a deep sense that you're never safe. Yeah. Like this particular guy, mm-hmm. this particular bad guy was dealt with and yet yeah there is still uh evil and it's still in the house and it's still in the house yeah and it's it really does make you think it's that primal thing that great horror makes you feel of the infinite possibilities of harm that could happen to you Mm -hmm. it's this thing that's always there it's always possible right that someone could kill you tomorrow, you mm-hmm. know? Right. <laughs> and that's uh, obviously it doesn't make sense to go around, to go about your life thinking about that. No. And also it's probably not going to happen or maybe something really good could happen to you. Yeah. But horror activates that part of your brain to trick you into thinking, at least for a moment, I will never be safe. No. And I think that that is something that that feeling also comes up in Twin Peaks. Absolutely. And, and maybe Bob is is that feeling, that I mean, primal, yeah, that primal threat that the universe, as such, uh, poses mm. to all of its denizens. Yes. Because they are not it. Because they are only one part of something that is not caring for them. Yes. And looking out for them. Right. And their very vulnerability. The fact of their vulnerability makes them more vulnerable because that it wants to cause suffering, even if it's completely mindless, it does have a desire to do that. And so the fact that you can feel pain makes you more attractive. Yeah, that's right. That's how it plays out in Twin Peaks. I was almost tying it to like the the feeling that the indifference of the universe is Mm -hmm. itself a threat, but yeah. you're right in horror movies and in Twin Peaks, it's more like we we took all of the things that can harm you in the indifferent universe and gave them agency. Yes, <laughs> yes. And personified them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shouldn't be scary. It should be hokey the way that if you, you know, if you, if, the way that Cupid as a personification of the abstract idea of love mm-hmm. is hokey and, and not interesting. Yeah. Um, or, you know, nowadays to, you know, no one's interested in Athena as like an embodiment of, of wisdom. The idea of embodying the impersonal mm-hmm. isn't really a big thing in our culture anymore. No, I don't think so. Apart but from embodying evil, though, yes, is still very effective. Absolutely. I mean, I guess you can make a cha- uh, case for, God, superhero movies. They embody ideas of strength and patriotism and stuff like that's that true. but yeah but but you know that's just fascism man <laughs> well let's <laughs> we're gonna save that for hot take corner <laughs> okay <laughs> our 
our bonus episode. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, this, that was quite a digression. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all of these images of surveillance and spying and the invasion of privacy, you know, another, um, which we can talk about at length later too, is when Maddie is sneaking out of the house, she doesn't see, but we see Leland just giving her this insane stare out of the dark. And it's one of the most terrifying <laughs> images in, in the episode, possibly in the show. Um, but all of this put together, I mean, I think it is supposed to be connected to the violence that's faced by a lot of these characters, in particular, the young women, um, in that, especially if you look at Laura, what do they do? They basically, they turn her into a costume that Maddie can put on or take off at will. Mm -hmm. They listen to the tapes of her voice, but they are broken up into multiple segments and they pause, they rewind, they listen to some stuff and not other stuff. It's like, it's another way that she is being turned into an object. Mm -hmm. You know, she's all, she's the girl in the picture frame. She's the body wrapped in plastic. She's a commodity. She's something that is literally traded and tradable. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, not to be glib, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> when Pete, is has this mounted fish yeah. that he's mm -hmm. uh, showing to Harry Truman, and he says, uh, "It was actually bigger." Yeah, you may be lying. You may be, yeah, uh, you know, expanding on the truth. Mm -hmm. But he says it. It lost something in translation. Yes, and that's Laura, who is always in translation here. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. And there, but there is a kind of um, tension, though in all these different recordings mm -hmm. of the truth between the recording as the um, reinterpretation. Yes. Uh, that is embodying the mm -hmm. desire of the person doing it. That's the vertigo yeah. element right. of what they're doing with Maddie. That Maddie is, they're dressing her up to be Laura so that she can be the object of desire. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not a recording. So there's a tension between the recording as reinterpretation and the recording as the unfiltered truth mm -hmm. that threatens your interpretation and your whole, yes, the life you've built around that. And mm -hmm. that's, um, that's Waldo. Right. Um, who has, is offering a, his translation of Laura. Yes. And it's garbled. We, and it's incomplete. It's incomplete. You know, it, Cooper presumably thinks that this these are the last moments mm -hmm. of Laura's life. Yeah. It's very chilling. Mm -hmm. She says, you know, no, Leo, don't. Yeah. We know that, unfortunately, her and I got a lot worse than that. Right. Those were not her last moments. Um, but Leo has to kill Waldo mm -hmm. and, you know, splatter blood all over the jelly donuts. Yeah. And pause. But what one of the things I really love about the scene where they find the dead Waldo is... Truman and Cooper are both, you know, they're upset because this bird who was their only witness uh, is now gone. And so they can't ask it anything or get any more information. Right. But what Andy says very quietly is poor Waldo. And I think that's a really consistent bit of characterization. Yes. It's pretty small and they didn't have to do it, but yeah. that's, 
that's Andy and that's important that he he's really just thinking about the pain that bird went through mm-hmm. and it's yeah. sad it makes him sad yeah that's a good observation mm-hmm. um yeah but uh to to reel us back in mm-hmm. you know like a yeah. like a big fish that's larger than life right um so Leo has to kill Watto because what Watto is presenting is something Leo is trying to hide. Yes. The truth. Mm-hmm. So that's the power of these recordings that um, they can they contain the truth in some way, but and that it makes them dangerous because that's the truth that you're trying to bury or hide with your desire. But they're also prone to being reinterpreted. You know, we did want to talk about um, that uh, when James mm-hmm. and the rest are listening to the yes. tape recording. Yes. Um, she says something like, it's always been so easy. She says, I don't know why it's so easy for me to get men to like me. Right. But I always can. And she starts to say something like, maybe if I couldn't. And then that's where James turns it off. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's, um, I think pretty easy to see why the previous words upset James, because basically Lara is saying that she is aware of her attractiveness and that she sometimes, she knows how to exploit it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that she has, I think a certain amount of contempt for the people who are attracted to her. Mm -hmm. But then he cuts her off when she starts to Talk about her own talk, suffering. Talk about her own feelings about it. Right. Yeah. And when she was about to reveal something about herself. Yeah, and who knows what she was going to say, but I get the suspicion that it was probably something like, maybe if I couldn't, I'd be happier, you know? My life would be better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it, right. It couldn't be, my life would be worse. Right. That's for sure. Right. Um, so it, it, it must have been something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, they really... It's amazing I, because I think James and Donna did both love Laura in their way, but I think they couldn't ever really get over the idea that it was actually pretty great to be Laura. Right. And even in trying to do something for Laura, mm-hmm. ostensibly, which yeah. is to find out who killed her. Right. You know, that, you know, it raises the question whether this whole um process of uncovering the truth of Laura's death. Uh is that for Laura? Who is that for? Yeah, Who I does think, it help? Who I does think it that's hurt? a really good question. They are um, you know, they're they wind up using Laura mm-hmm. to solve her as a tool to solve her own death. They're listening to these tapes where she's could be revealing yeah, and is revealing things about herself, not not the biggest secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just kind of skipping over that and just listening to these tapes intently thinking, how can we use this to find out who killed her? Right. Not to like enter into a deeper relationship with this person to not to think, wow, I guess I, I didn't know her that well. It's to finish the burial, you know? And and that's even, they make that almost explicit a couple of episodes ago. They have to bury Laura because that's how you finish this. And Albert doesn't want that because it's not finished yet. If they're not finished figuring right. out what happened to her and, and everybody sort of accepts that framing of it, that once she's in the ground, it's over. 
And I think that's a big part of what Donna and James want, which is to just well put her in the ground. Uh, I do want to point out, though, that Albert is also trying to find out who killed her. Yes, so I know. It's a little, I think it's a little more complicated. You know, obviously they could just move on with their lives. Mm -hmm. They have it in their heads that they should do this. Yes. It's not, I think there's a mix of noble reasons. Yes, but I think everybody reasons. is accepting the framing that Lara can't really be buried until we know what happened. Right. Well, I think there are some people that don't want that don't want that and some people that do. Yes. Right. Uh, but the people, right. I'm just kind of thinking out loud, mm -hmm. like that there are people that want her buried in the sense that everyone will just forget about it. Yeah. Those are people like Leo who mm -hmm. feel like they may be implicated in her death, even though yeah. Leo knows he didn't kill her. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are people who, uh, yes, they want, they won't, don't want to let it go. Yeah. Right, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. They're they're saying no, we're not letting it go until we know. Yeah. But there is this idea that the truth will give closure. Yes, that's that's really what I'm saying. And in fact, yeah, I think this is a another, they're chasing closure. Exactly. This is another tension in the show. Is um, what what is the uh, what's the goal of of this process? You know, will the truth set you free? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of detective stories, you know, there's this, there's a kind of eschatological progress of um, moving from darkness to light, mm. this final revelation. And that revelation also happens to dispose of all the problems and conflicts. Yes. And yet, if it's a murder mystery, mm -hmm. the revelation is always a revelation of the true horrible details of this thing that happened that can never be undone. Yes. And so... In Twin Peaks as well, there's the tension between the idea that the truth will finally set us free, allow mm -hmm. us to go on, or does the truth only, are we just digging up more and more dirt and just showing ourselves more and more how unfree we are, how completely yeah, and and I want to connect that to what I was saying before about how this process of looking at different aspects of Laura's life, the recordings, her diary, pictures of her, uh, testimony from the bird or from people who knew she <laughs> yeah. was doing sex work, they're all about trying to resolve those contradictions in her life by looking at each individual piece of her life discreetly yeah unconnected to any of the others right and trying to use that small part as somehow representative but that's a good way to look at literature that's you know structuralism but it's a dehumanizing way of looking at a person right she wasn't a random collection of facets she was a person all of these things about her were happening all at once and were influencing each other and reinforcing each other the tape yeah. recordings do not sum up her total feelings about James or Donna or men or anybody else. The fact right. that she was a beauty queen is no more representative of her than the fact that she was a sex worker. These are all happening at once. And this is another way that, yeah, she's being turned into a commodity. She's being broken up into parts and the parts are distributed to people. Right, yeah. The, the ultimately unknowable and indivisible the mystery of who she was, mm -hmm. all of the infinite 
uh, subtleties yes. of who she was, you know, are then uh, divided up into words and concepts mm -hmm. and images. Yes. Which is uh, why the movie Fire Walk With Me is so important. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's still more images. It, even that's not the final truth. And yet that's, you know, much closer. And that's what really you don't, it's a necessary part of the Twin Peaks world. Yes, absolutely. And it, uh, it yeah, having seen Fire Walk With Me does change the way I view all of these Mm -hmm. scenes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, actually, this uh, is a good segue into a bigger theme I wanted to touch on, mm. which is the rewatch value of Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, and how it has this kind of built in rewatch value, um, which is interesting, you know, uh, when it came out, it wasn't, it wasn't so easy to rewatch an entire TV series. Obviously, mm -hmm. there were VHS cassettes. Sure, but. And there were reruns. Right, but you know, those could be hard to find or uh, cassettes are actually pretty expensive for a while. Um, it sounds so quaint now, but the film industry was really terrified of the idea of having, you know, a recorder at home where you could record things <laughs> off the TV. Right. Um, so naive, but. Yeah, I think the rewatch value is pretty interesting. Personally, I love to rewatch horror and thrillers and mysteries, mm -hmm. even if I don't find them as scary as I did the first time or as surprising. This is also the reason why I don't really mind spoilers, um, because I get a lot of pleasure out of seeing how something is working towards its goal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that that's that that's built in to Twin Peaks mm. and that that is a, a pleasure you can get from you know reading an old Sherlock Holmes story sure whatever. but uh I do think that a lot of mysteries for most people are art based on a whodunit angle mm -hmm. they can um they can lose a lot of their rewatch value yeah but Twin Peaks does it because um it really is of a new story mm -hmm. once you know who the killer is. Absolutely. Um, because of who the killer is. Mm -hmm. and I don't think it would have worked. It would have worked at all if it if the killer had turned out to be Ben Horn. Or Leo, I think. Right. Because we know that they're bad guys. So yeah. that's the story. It would then be the story of bad guys being bad. And yeah, caught. right. They... Leo Johnson doesn't have feelings. Right. He's just, he's basically a lizard person. He hurts, he hurts women because that's just what he does. Uh, a lizard person? Uh, no, okay. lizard, the lizard people theory is anti-Semitic no. and it's bad. Yes, sorry, don't cancel me. Um, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd say sociopath, but I don't really believe in that either. Also problematic. Also problematic, I think. He's just a bad person. This will get into our Sopranos rewatch. Yes. Now, these are these are dumb ways of thinking about characters, like trying to diagnose them or something. I actually feel very strongly about this. Leo Johnson isn't a sociopath. He's not a lizard person. He's a sinner. There. <laughs> right. He's a person who could... Do the right thing do and right just thing does it doesn't. because he gets so much pleasure out of doing the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but because the killer is Leland, yes, then 
you know, once you rewatch it and you, you're no longer thinking, oh, look at this clue or, oh, mm -hmm. I bet this person's the killer or that person's the killer. Yes. All that energy is sucked out. Mm -hmm. But it's replaced with this very, uh, very fascinating story about a killer hiding in plain sight. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, there were moments in this episode, especially the one where Leland stares at Maddie as she walks down the stairs that are so chilling. Right. Once you know, and it's a little hard to think, well, how is this meant to be taken? And we know that Ray Wise did not know at this point that Leland was going to be the killer. He had no idea um, whether Frost or Lynch knew and when they knew, like that's that's always been a bone of contention. Yeah, well, I think that we have said in, in yeah. the past episode that they didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, or they hadn't decided rather. Right, but uh, I read on this, uh, this website called n.wikipedia.org mm. that uh, <laughs> apparently uh, it says that they that they did know from the beginning mm. uh, and it, it cites a featurette from the deluxe box edition that's so weird because there is actually like a longer version of the pilot that was meant to just be a tv movie where a killer is revealed and it's not leland it's not leland yeah so we'll have to watch that featurette, yeah, mm -hmm. and maybe that'll be a, a bonus episode. Right. Um, I don't think they knew from day one. Maybe they knew by at this point, but or maybe they knew, but they didn't want this the dumb tacked-on ending to ruin the real mystery. <laughs> sure. Who knows? Um, it's hard to say. It, it, it really is. I mean, but it I could, think it couldn't have been anyone else. No, I, I absolutely don't think it could have been anyone else, and it would not have been satisfying if it was anyone else. Yeah, the satisfaction, a lot of it comes from the performance of Ray Wise. That mm -hmm. He is so intense. Yes. And yeah, I think you you said that he has, he brings so much chaotic, chaotic energy. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, this darkness. Yes. That even if people didn't suspect him as much as people like Ben Horn, uh, but when he is revealed, it's very satisfying. And it feels seamless. Right, because... He seemed like he should be important. Mm -hmm. He seemed like uh, he was always making you uneasy as you were watching. Yes, him, he so. seems potentially dangerous, especially in this episode. And I read an interview with Ray Wise when he talked about his performance in Twin Peaks and what he was trying for and how, especially in the pilot, he just realized every scene that I'm in, I'm crying. I have to find different <laughs> ways to do each scene otherwise it's just going to be over right. the top and annoying it's just going to be a guy who's always crying right and he basically wanted each episode to be an opportunity to show a different side of grief right and i think if i were watching this cold and mm -hmm. didn't know about leland what I might think isn't that, oh, Leland's going to be the killer, but maybe I would think that Leland is someone who was driven so insane by grief right. that maybe he could do some dangerous things. Yeah, and that is that is what this story is building up to. Yes. Uh, he, uh, right, he, that in the, in the next episode, Leland mm -hmm. kills Jacques. Yes. Um, at the hospital. Yes. Right? And... Uh, you know, and that's that's how it plays. That mm -hmm. it's revenge, and it's this very tragic thing. 
Right. It becomes, it's very clever that it puts you off the scent because all the drama around Leland then becomes uh, how, you know, the kind of time to kill mm -hmm. uh, idea of, oh, we sympathize with him wanting to kill this man. Yes. And yet it, it was <laughs> technically wrong. Right. But we don't we don't really want him to go to jail for that. Right. And it, it reinforces what we were saying before about Laura's death, that everybody wants closure, but that's not really a real thing that happens. And that maybe the tragedy of her death just leads to more tragedy. It doesn't make Leland or Sarah stronger or right. um, bring them closer together. It just destroys them both in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, going back a little bit, you know, the, about the rewatch value being built in, I, I, I think it's even built in thematically mm -hmm. because the show is so much about going back to the past and reinterpreting it. Yes. Uh, and either reinterpreting it uh, because of your desires or reinterpreting it because new revelations have completely uh, destroyed your illusions about the past. Mm. And the show keeps going back. It's the whole process of going, like any mystery, you're going backward by going forward. Yes. Um, but unlike most mysteries, after we do that, we then go backward again mm -hmm. to before there's even a mystery mm -hmm. <laughs> to, see, to see it happening. So it's like the show itself was constantly rewatching itself. Yeah, <laughs> and that's finding a really good way to put it finding new things new importance in Laura's life mm -hmm. you know the there's a kind of melancholy yes in, in rewatching a mystery a mystery especially one that's as dark as this yeah because when you don't know what happens mm -hmm. it's this process of going from the darkness to the light mm -hmm. um and it's that must have been how it felt in the first season yeah and it seems like the way that the show was remembered is a lot lighter in tone than it actually is yes but once you know what happens and you go back and rewatch it it's uh it's you're at this god's eye view mm -hmm. and all you all you see is what other people don't see right right and, and cooper is no longer the 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 guy with the torch in the night mm -hmm. that you're following right now you see all the all the things that he doesn't see you see how much ignorance is enfolding all of these characters and the best that they can ever do mm -hmm. is to to find the truth right they're starting at a negative they can only come up to like neutral they can only come up to your level as the viewer yeah and i think that's um we've talked about this a little bit before how the ways that uh the detection strategies in the series reflect lynch's especially artistic methods which is to yes take what is already there and what kind of comes to you intuitively and building out of that rather than thinking of the goal and then figuring out okay well how do i get there and how do i lay things out so that they get me there yes right yeah to the extent that even if they if they didn't know mm -hmm. uh until the second season yes. that the killer would be leland i think they still would have chose him yeah I agree. Um, yeah. Because just, you know, story-wise. He's the only candidate. Performance-wise. Ray-wise. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the best story. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, okay, so uh, I guess we'll move on. Yeah, and since we talked about everything that Cooper is missing, why don't we talk about him? Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get to his storyline with Audrey in a bit, but um, he is kind of fucking up, I have to say. You know, um, Truman tells him, hey, the mill's going to burn down, and then he doesn't do anything about it. The mill burns down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be fair to him. Mm -hmm. It all it all unfolds very quickly. Yes, that's true. But and they they're already you know on their plan to go to One Eye Jacks. Yes, but given that he was kind of presented as the knight in shining armor mm -hmm. that swoops in, and he had the he has these preternatural uh, powers of deduction and intuitive. Yeah. Uh, understanding and maybe psychic abilities and psychic dreams that connect him to this other dimension, mm -hmm. all of these things. Um, and yet uh, he, he's so ineffectual yeah. in the last two episodes. Mm -hmm. It's not just, it's not just that he doesn't stop the mill from burning down, yeah. but also he's ineffectual with Audrey. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get too far into that right now, but um we see that Audrey uh, does uh, try to reach him before mm -hmm. she goes to One Eye Jacks, and she can't. So he's not there for her either. Yeah, he won't be there for her in the next episode. Um, and the time at One Eye Jacks is basically a complete waste of time. Yeah, in fact, yeah, he, he's going to wake up um, in the next season and find out all these things that happen, and he's on the same level as the viewers. Yes. He's like, how long was I gone? Mm -hmm. um, you know, instead instead of even help, even being helped, like instead of even trying to prevent these things and not succeeding, mm -hmm. he was unaware of them. Yeah, and the, it's because he's at One Eye Jacks mm -hmm. and it is ostensibly following up on this clue of the the chip. Yes, um, like you said, it's it's kind of a waste of time. I don't remember exactly. Do they learn anything there? I they well they they arrest somebody. Well, we'll have to follow um, up on that. Yeah, in the next episode. Um, but they were gonna they were gonna arrest Jacques Renault, but then Leland. Um, but they're already kind of on the wrong track. It's yeah. like, like I've said before, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what they're uncovering is kind of our red herrings. Mm -hmm. You know. Leo and Jacques didn't kill Laura. No. They actually already know that there was a third man. Yeah, they're they're not looking for the third man. Right. And Classic you know, how, mistake. How could they, how do you find the third man? Yeah. You know, do you go door to door and say, have you seen a third man? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even have that DVD. Um, right. Yeah. But, you know, and again, they they never look at Leland when that ought to have been, that ought to have been step one. Just to eliminate him. Right. And and what's interesting is that while Cooper is being at 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 best ineffectual, mm -hmm. he is what in doing that, he is um forging uh, strengthening his bonds with Harry and the Bookhouse Boys. Mm -hmm. Right. He is leading them mm -hmm. an extrajudicial militia. Mm -hmm. Uh, across the border, mm -hmm. where he has no jurisdiction, mm -hmm. um, into a, an illegal invasion. I don't know. I don't want to overstate it, but it is an illegal operation, explicitly. Harry Truman 
voted for Trump. Mm. I'm sorry. Maybe he didn't, you know, maybe he was already, spoiler alert, in the hospital at that point because he's in the hospital in the return. But I'm pretty sure about this. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. Doesn't he say something in this episode that kind of reinforces his conservative nature? Well, he goes to oh, right. Norma's basically just to intimidate Hank with a, you know, you put one foot wrong and it's right back to jail with you. Um, and I don't, I don't like Hank. Hank is bad. Hank is a thug. Hank abuses Norma. He manipulates Josie. He's bad. But what's, what's Harry even doing? What, right. Why is he doing that? Well, and Harry says to Cooper, do you think that people can change? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't think he believes in rehabilitated criminals. And you know, he is right about Hank. Yes. Uh, he's not right universally. No. And, and in fact, like what plays out with Leland, who commits murders while being possessed by an evil spirit, mm -hmm. completely shatters like this idea of uh, personal responsibility. Yeah, and but also, you know, who is the criminal type and who isn't? Right. Is and Le can is Leland it... change? Well, he can when the evil spirit leaves his body. Yeah, but also, like, where is the evil in Twin Peaks located? Is it right. people coming across the border? Is it people coming back into town from prison? No, it's here. It's it's in the upstanding, professional, educated, middle class homeowner. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, right. So this is a bookhouse boys. Cooper is, um, decides to, yeah, take this, um, illegal action. And I don't want to get too hung up on it being illegal, you know, like the I law guess is he, not the arbiter he has of the, reality, Yeah. But. He has the go ahead of the FBI. Um, cause they give him money so they can pretend to be high rollers. Interesting. So you're saying the FBI signed off on an illegal activity? Mm -hmm. I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's a, <laughs> you know, but I think it is important that it's illegal because so much of Cooper's image that he presents to the world and himself is yeah. a man of the law who upholds the law. Yes. Um, but we know he's willing to break the law or like, you know, bend the rules. Like when he sided with Harry mm -hmm. again mm -hmm. um, against Albert. Yes. Because Harry did in fact assault Albert. Mm -hmm. That is actually what happened. That, uh, that's illegal to do that. That's a crime. Yeah. And, you know, basically the only defense is, well, Albert deserved, deserved it for being it. a dick. Which might be true, but that's not the law. Right. And, you know, we may think that that's, maybe that's no, maybe that's like Cooper's uh, flexibility, his ability mm. to follow the, the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. But it is curious that he's always siding with Harry mm -hmm. and Harry is pretty much always wrong about everything. Mm. And he, Harry is wrong in this episode yeah. about Josie. Yep. Because Harry, I mean, it's kind of weird because really what, Josie is telling him they should have followed up on, which is this plot with the mill. Mm -hmm. um, but more generally, Harry is telling Cooper that we can trust Josie yeah, because I, I love her. And I want to 
connect this back to Lara because I think Josie is most interesting as a kind of double mm-hmm. or doppelganger for Lara in that people just see discrete parts of her and then assume that that's the whole mm-hmm. instead of actually looking at the whole. And so Truman has a view of Josie as basically like a damsel in distress, somebody who's very weak and vulnerable and needs a lot of protection. And if she does something that's not so great, like follow somebody to a hotel and take pictures of them as they go into the hotel, it's just because she's so desperate for, Mm -hmm. you know, that help and protection. And, you know, Truman's the man who can provide it for her um, against this, you know, awful crazy world it never occurs to him that Josie could be manipulating him or not telling him the whole truth Mm -hmm. it really doesn't right well yeah and also he's a man that goes by his gut right and 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 he thinks that people don't change they're always just one thing exactly and they stay that one thing throughout their one life and he thinks well Josie has real feelings for me and I think he's right yeah I think she does he draws the conclusion that therefore but, she would not lie to me. Yeah. <laughs> and or, she, must, she yeah. must be what I think she is, mm-hmm. which is innocent and pure. Yes. Yes. And if that's, if there's a lesson from this show at all, it's that people are never just one thing. Yeah. I think that's, that's well said. Um, and that's, that's the worldview that Cooper is becoming inc- increasingly drawn into. Mm-hmm. Um, as they're hunting down the obvious bad guys. Yeah. At One Eye Jacks. Mm-hmm. Jacques Renault. Yeah. Uh, and and Blackie and all of them. And they are indeed very bad people. Right. They did not kill Laura. No, they didn't. In fact, we learned later that Laura couldn't cut it at One Eye Jacks because of her... Because of her drug use. Yeah. yeah. Because she was so traumatized. It wasn't One Eye Jacks that traumatized her. She came to One Eye Jacks traumatized. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, no, get out of here. Right. Yeah. It's completely overturning this idea of, um, you know, that, that it must've, it must've been the the sex work, the drugs or whatever, that was the cause of Laura's trauma. Yes. And it's in a way very cynical, but I think the scene with Blackie and Audrey kind of shows this, but they're running a business there, you know, like it's, it's not a den of sin where, people go to be sinful because it's so horrible and um, it's just nothing but nonstop rape. I mean, I think rape undoubtedly happens there. Exploitation undoubtedly happens there, but like it's a workplace. Right. And that means they want to make money, which means that they would not allow in a messy girl like Laura. They just wouldn't. Right. And, uh, or run it. Mm-hmm. I think they were both kicked out. Yeah, they were. Right. Yeah, and actually, um, we well, maybe we should get into Audrey's storyline. Yeah, think I think so. Segue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's do that. Uh, since we're talking about One Eye Jacks, I think this is a pretty good segue into talking about Audrey, whose storyline in this episode is obviously very connected to Cooper and to One Eye Jacks, increasingly. So the episode starts pretty much exactly where we left off at the end of the last one, which is Audrey naked in Cooper's bed. And he will not have sex with her. He'll just talk to her. But what I think is most interesting is that we don't see it. Yeah. 
this had never occurred to me mm -hmm. until last night. Yeah. And as soon as it occurred to me, I became incredibly frustrated. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as frustrated as Dale. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes what you want and what you need are two separate things. Yes. It's, it's, it's crazy to me that we don't see the scene where they talk. Yeah, we just know that they did, but we don't even hear what they talked about. She clearly didn't tell him what her plan was because he doesn't know about it. Right, but did he have reason to believe, based on the conversation, that she might be in trouble? I, I think it's important to know what they talked about to even be able to judge Cooper's actions. Like, mm -hmm. when she tries to, to contact him, should he have been expecting that? Yeah, yeah. Just even if he doesn't know what she's planning on doing, mm -hmm. Maybe he knew that she had some kind of vague plot, or yeah. maybe she said that she would keep her, you know, her ear to the ground and at the department store, try to find something out there, and that she would be, that she would be following up with him. Yeah, I um, mean, has Dale talked to Lara's old boss at the <clears throat> department store? I don't know. Like, what detecting are they doing? Well, I know it's only been a couple days, but they're chasing like Leo and Jacques, and they're not even trying to put together a picture of what Laura was doing in the couple days before she died. Leo and, and Jacques are the bad guys. Yeah. So those are those the guys, are the guys you after. go after, right? Um, yeah, so, right. It's, but also just for the purposes of characterization, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we, we asked the question in mm -hmm. the last episode, mm -hmm. why is Audrey crying here? And yes. Presumably, she just told Cooper why she was crying. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why she 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 was distraught. And yes. He knew he could intuit that she needed a friend mm -hmm. to talk to. Yeah. And they talked. Yeah. About her feelings, probably. Um, about what she saw. Yeah. Before. I would. Uh, it, it just would have been nice to get that uh, a little bit of dialogue or something. There. Right. And I it's... wonder if they shot it and and just. It wound up on the cutting room floor. Possibly, but it makes it seem even more like the scene is just in there so that they can say, they're not going to hook up. Don't think about it happening anymore. Well, yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of gossip yeah. around this storyline. Um, because Sherilyn Finn said that there was going to be more to this mm -hmm. relationship. Yes. It's not clear that they were going to get together romantically at mm -hmm. any point. Right. And I, I, at one point I thought that, um, that what Sherilyn Finn had said was that this scene would actually turn out with them sleeping together. Yeah. And I don't or really, I feel like I had read that somewhere, but right, and I don't really it doesn't that. make any sense for the character. Yeah. We can see in previous scenes that Dale was uneasy about the age difference. Mm-hmm. As well, he should be. Yes, and and more than that, I don't think Dale will, at least at this point in his life, get involved with somebody who is this connected to a case he's investigating. Yeah, that's that's right. He has lots of lots of noble reasons for doing it, mm -hmm. um, he, and I think all those reasons are all correct. Yeah, he sees that what she really needs is emotional support, mm -hmm. not sex. And that also implicitly she needs to be reminded that those are different things. Yeah. And that also you shouldn't like, she doesn't need to offer this. She doesn't to somebody. need to. Yeah. And it should not 
be expected from a man that mm-hmm. that would be an exchange yeah. of sex for friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he needs to, yeah, like help be a father figure. Yeah. It, to give her support and, uh, and, and wise advice and counsel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it would have been great to see him do that. But yeah. And I guess I mean, it wasn't important. <laughs> no, but I don't know. Now that I'm thinking of it, it makes me even more sad because the other thing that this episode really drives home, especially because Jacoby is so involved in it, is that that's exactly what Laura needed. And yeah. nobody gave it to her, even the people who were supposed to, like her fucking therapist. Right. Well, that's what she says to him, you know, on the tape, like, I might tell you about my dreams. I might tell you about my, my naked dreams. Yeah. I know you like those. Right. Uh, and yeah, she probably courted that to some extent. Sure, it's her self-destructive. Yeah, advice. and Audrey, of her complete free volition, put herself naked in Dale's bed. Yeah, it's not about what they do; it's about how the men respond to it. Yeah. Just because a vulnerable teenager is saying, "You can have sex with me; it's totally okay," that doesn't obligate right. you, the adults, to do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's just like Ginny. Uh, at the perfume counter, mm-hmm. we see that she does know. This is something I mentioned. Yeah, I think in the last she episode. knows a little bit about what this job at One Eye Jacks will entail. Yeah, I think she knows the most girl. of it. That yeah, it is it's sex work. Yeah, she and, and she she's had, entering into it for the money. And she had gone to One Eye Jacks before. She knows all the girls are in their underwear. She yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think it's very clear. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she's doing it. She's engaging in sex work for money. Yeah, as women and teenage girls often do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so kind of going back to what you said, the problem is not what she's doing. The problem's that what the men are doing is because just because she knows, you know, knows Mm -hmm. like the details of what she's doing, she's not prepared to make those choices. No. And she, I guess she doesn't know, maybe this is your point, the whole web of connections and Mm -hmm. ramifications of the world that she's getting involved in. Yes. And how this is connected to this world of crime and yeah. drugs. Mm-hmm. And she may not know what she, things that she would be coerced into doing. Right. And it's possible that some of these girls go through this process and come out on the other end and think, okay, I made some money for college or something. Sure. But it's, that doesn't let off the, like, obviously it's, this predatory mm-hmm. business right and that is preying on yeah people like jenny mm-hmm. audrey and laura yeah and counting on them to make bad decisions yeah because they're teenagers because they're teenagers what teenagers do is make bad decisions <laughs> right um yeah in fact uh you know jenny the guy at the perfume counter, mm-hmm. he gives her a unicorn. Yeah. So do you think that purity? Do you think Jenny's a replicant? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> hmm. Was not prepared for this question or this potential crossover. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. We'll uh, yeah. We'll do a deep dive on that. Okay. On a bonus episode. Yeah. She won't live, but then again, who does? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think Jimmy's a replicant, but I think that choice of gift is very uh, yes. pointed almost to the point of being lazy in, in that, you know, 
these girls are being chosen for this job because they are at least seen to have qualities of innocence. Yeah, exactly. You know, not because they are seasoned pros. Yes. For example, Laura and Ronette were already doing sex work when they got to One-Eyed Jacks, and One-Eyed Jacks did not want them there. Right. Yeah, that that's yeah, that's also a good point about the the scumminess. Yeah. And exploitation of of what what they're doing at One-Eyed Jacks. Yeah. It's like presented to the girls as a free contract you enter into mm-hmm. where you get what you want, we get what we want. Yeah. And yet, uh, for One-Eyed Jacks, they understand that the appeal of the girls is that they are too young to freely enter into these contracts. Yes, exactly. Is that they are vulnerable. It's, it's, the appeal is that it's you that, can have sex with someone who is has less power than you. And less experience and less knowledge. Yes. That person will not be able to say no to you. That person will not be able to request certain kinds of sex or um, forbid other kinds. They'll just do whatever you want because they don't know anything. Right. Yes. But, um, but it's important to remember that this is just the way that capitalism works in general. Yes. Yes. Uh, It's especially bad when it's uh, the people exploited are, uh, teenagers or children mm-hmm. and and obviously when bodies are exploited sexually that can be extremely traumatic mm-hmm. but the whole uh, presentation of a free contract that is actually coercive because yes. of the power imbalance that's just wage labor that's man just, yeah you know and that's it's not the girl's fault it's it's never the worker's fault it's always fine to be a worker it's always bad to be a boss Right. Yeah. She's, she's, uh, she has, you know, probably has good reasons for doing what she's doing and and thinks that she can handle it. Absolutely. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone should take her up on that. Yeah. And and maybe she'll be fine. We don't really know anything. I mean, I hate to even like, as soon as I said that, I even thought, why am I even bringing this up? But you know, I think, the reason why I'm maybe hemming and hawing here a little bit is not because apart from the, like the angle of them being teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot about sex work in Twin Peaks and it's very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, it does seem to, it, it first presents sex work as, as the, the, the boogeyman mm-hmm. of both conservatives and a certain strain of radical feminists. Yeah, I think it does, as much as we're trying to make this about work in general, I think the Twin Peaks does present sex work as something that is inherently and especially exploitative. Yes, but it, it but it also does, I think, uh, deconstruct that notion a little bit mm. because, like I said, it's not sex work that ruins Laura. Or yes. I, you can see the sex work is part of the same thing mm-hmm, for sure. Right. Um, but in, in this case, at least, yeah, it, she seeks the sex work because she's already been traumatized by a man closer to home. Yes. Yes. Um, and yeah. so, right. The, the idea of sex work is, it's like, a, like, I don't know, it's something that is so different mm-hmm. from regular work in, uh, the ways that it exploits bodies is something I want to kind of, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily want to commit to that. Uh, well, even though obviously it's terrible. 
Well, I think, this, yeah, this I mean, the, the way that we talk about it and the way that we, again, talk about work in general, it just comes from this like weird puritanical morass of American culture where we valorize suffering, but at the same time, we think it's kind of pathetic. And so to tell someone you're being exploited is the same as telling them that they're weak and that they are kind of, you know, low and degraded and almost contemptible. Mm -hmm. um, so people don't really want to think that they're being exploited. People want to think that they're entering into contracts freely and that they right. know what they're doing and that the boss isn't getting one over on me because if he was, then maybe that makes me stupid. Right. Um, and that's something that goes beyond sex work. And with sex work especially, we think that and we also think that when a woman has this done to her, she's made dirty. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. And yeah, we don't want to reinforce either of those strains. Is that even when criticizing sex work on the left, mm -hmm. there is this heavy subtext often that it's bad because it's dirty mm -hmm. and it makes you dirty to do it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, that the... I guess it's the question of, yeah, like when you're degraded, is that something external to you or does it actually change you and make you a degraded? It's like when you're objectified, do yeah. you become an object? Yeah. And the answer is yes and no, I guess. Yeah. And everybody who went to Catholic school will have a story like this at what it was laughingly, um, laughably referred to as family life class, by which they meant sex ed, is there would always be like some lesson where they would, you know, pass around a Kleenex and make people wipe their nose with it. And then at the end it's useless and yeah. nobody can use it anymore. And that's what it means to have sex with lots of people. And um, yeah. So I think a lot of people really do think that it's just that some people think that, and then they think, but it's not your fault, you know, the, that you were just treated like a used Kleenex, but it still kind of sucks to call somebody a used Kleenex, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that that's not, you know, that when we talk about Laura's dark side, mm -hmm. it's not, her dark side isn't that she did those things just because those are like disgusting things to do. No, it's she that for was, her, she was she punishing was, herself. Yes, she was trying to hurt herself and self-medicate. And I think what Firewalk With Me shows in an interesting way is there's an extent to which the sex work was as much self-medication as the drug use. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it's, yeah. It, and then you could say, well, yeah, she shouldn't have done cocaine or mm -hmm. these drugs that certainly wasn't helping the situation, but yeah. also like, what else was she supposed to do? Right. Like, in her position, what the fuck? All of the adults in her life who should have noticed that something was wrong and helped her just exploited her themselves. Yeah, like what else are you going to do in that situation but just like do whatever makes you feel better in the moment mm -hmm. or even just makes you feel worse but in a way that's controllable, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, why not like have your body degraded in circumstances that you're at least nominally choosing, mm -hmm. you know, with 
with strangers rather than totally against your will from your father. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like that's the, the sex work is exploitative, but that just becomes, you know, it's exploitative, but you can't really judge her for engaging in it. No. And, and, and the other point I wanted to make, um, just because I feel like I kind of wound up uh, traipsing through a minefield. <laughs> Wasn't prepared to talk about this. Uh, it's all right. I guess just to clarify the reason I'm trying to make these distinctions that mm -hmm. um, when I could just say, obviously, this is fucked up yeah. that these people at One Eye Jacks are pimping out teenagers. Right. Um, is to get away from this caricatured idea of human trafficking absolutely where it's always someone getting it's always like yeah you get snatched from a grocery store parking lot head, right and you're in a shipping container mm -hmm. um because if you don't understand that it's often people like jenny yeah teenagers who think that they, they know what they're, doing, they're or, doing or people making free but constrained and shitty yeah. choices from the options that are available to them exactly. under capitalism if like to yeah. yeah to put it very very simply the bad part about sex work isn't the sex it's the work right yeah and if you have these caricature ideas as which are like you know so current mm -hmm. uh, among uh, the right wing now and also to some extent the left mm -hmm. these caricature ideas of of human trafficking then i think it does blind you yes you know so i'm not trying to let anyone off the hook and pointing out that jenny is um not being bonked on the head mm -hmm. and not even being lied to about the nature of the work i'm saying this is how it happens yeah and right if you don't understand that then it's going to keep happening yeah exactly and i think like the the bonked on the head put in a shipping container narrative is something that puts actual trafficking victims in danger because they don't fit that narrative. And that leads people to exactly. look at them and say, well, you weren't being exploited. You signed up for this. Yeah. You're just a prostitute. You're just a prostitute. You're not a victim because victims are hit on the back of the head and kept prisoner. Exactly. And that's not what you did. You made a choice. Right. And that goes back to this thing part of capitalism mm -hmm. where if there was a nominal choice, then there's no victim. Exactly. Exactly. Free contracts. Yes. Uh, so, okay. So um, we want to finish up this this narrative of Audrey at One Eye Jack. Yeah, right? we got kind of far afield from <laughs> Audrey. It's a lot of tangents. Right. No, it's uh, that's you know how you make art is tangents, just things evolving naturally. Um, yeah. It, she has a plan. She's succeeding in this plan. She gets to One-Eyed Jacks. I think the scene with her and Blackie is really great. Um, I think uh, Sherilyn Fenn, this, it's like the most beautiful she ever looked on the show. Mm -hmm. um, that dress, it's like the portrait of Madame X by John Singer Sargent, if you want to look that up. Um, but... What I love about it is that she is presenting herself as sexy and sophisticated, much more sophisticated than the girls who were working at One Eye Jacks, who are all in like really tawdry, loud um, mm -hmm. lingerie all the time. It's right. just like lots of bright, clashing colors and yeah. textures. And she's in a very sleek, 
black dress. Um, so she's presenting herself that way, but she's so full of nervous energy. Like her leg keeps bouncing right? Yeah. Um, all through the conversation. It's pretty interesting. And, and it helps explain why Blackie immediately clocks her as just uh, a kid. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be confusing because Sherilyn Fenn was an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be, I guess, yeah, maybe sometimes you forget this character is supposed to be in high school. But yeah. You don't forget because of the performance. No. It's a great performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, she really plays her as, yeah, uh, a nervous, kind of fidgety mm-hmm. teenager. Or even not, even, I think she is a little nervous, but also just the way that teenagers sometimes don't realize how they're coming across or kids or even a kid, you know, that kids will just kind of, uh, kids and certain adults, Mm -hmm. um, who should not be judged for this, Mm -hmm. uh, don't always know like what their bodies are doing talking to people. Mm -hmm. They may sway back and forth, um, or do things with their hands Yeah, and they're not presenting themselves in a professional way, Mm -hmm. a studied way. Yes. Uh, that uh, that many adults will do. Right. And I don't think Audrey is quite there, but she is performing. Like, she's she's not this sexy, sophisticated, experienced sex worker. She's somebody who doesn't know what she's doing. She's pretending to be that woman. Yeah, she kind of is going back and forth. Mm-hmm. And she obviously, it's almost like in a, this, uh, just something that she knows how to do or maybe yeah. she picks up on it like with Laura like oh I know when I do these things women or uh, men pay attention mm-hmm. you know and you could cultivate it that way just naturally like oh okay yeah um but still it's not completely mm-hmm. she's still herself as well she goes back and forth like with the the cherry stems yes um yeah she ties the cherry stem uh in a knot with her tongue, which is like on the surface, very sexy, but it's so funny to watch her facial expression while she's doing it right. because she's concentrating really hard right. as you would have to, to actually do that. Yeah. She, right. She can no longer concentrate on making herself the perfect sexual object while she's doing this performance. Mm-hmm. So her eyes kind of go up or. Yeah. She, she kind of screws her face a little bit. Right. Uh, so she and that's her humanity yeah as she drops that facade to really concentrate on Mm -hmm. this thing and she's no longer you know it's a little thing that drops the fantasy yes um and it's a great great performance Mm -hmm. definitely because this is all right it's a great performance on the part of sherlyn finn Mm -hmm. to perform as a teenager who's performing yeah mm-hmm. Absolutely. and performing imperfectly yes uh although i think the way the scene is remembered and the way the characters remembered is just as someone who was really sexy and this scene was so sexy yeah i think and i think that's really unfair to everything that she's doing right well unfair and also it kind of ruins ruins the story if you just right. see her as a sexy character doing sexy things mm-hmm. what that's not what the story is. She's a no. Jeffrey Beaumont. She's yeah. a, a teenage innocent with a curiosity about the darkness and maybe a darkness in herself. Yeah. But 
she's still fundamentally innocent and getting in over her head. And she's smart. And like a lot of smart right. teenagers, she thinks she understands the world better mm-hmm. than she actually does. Exactly. Yeah. That's the story. Mm-hmm. Not uh, a sex pot sexing all the pots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, was that everything we wanted to get I, to? I think it was. Oh, no. Can we talk about Ed's wig? <laughs> Yes. What's the deal with that wig? I don't know. It's pretty convincing. Uh, (laughs) What's stupid about it is that he already has big, thick hair. Why does he need to put an identical big, thick wig on top of his hair? (laughs) It's like, it's not even that different, except now his head looks bigger. I don't know. It's, it's, uh... Why just, just use the fake mustache? Someone might recognize him, I guess. They he, they would recognize him because it looks just like his regular hair. <laughs> it's just a wig. There's a, oh, lot, there's of, a lot of wigs. A lot of wigs in this in this one. Right. Well, it's it's his uh, it's his vertigo moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. If we're doing odds and sides, uh, <laughs> that conversation he has with Blackie is so fucking weird. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to get to this. It's. It's one of the funniest things uh-huh. because he, because Big Ed is posing as a, an oral surgeon, mm-hmm. but first he nervously says that he owns a gas station. So Blackie says, I've got a car out back with a serious root canal problem. And Ed says, I was hoping you'd need a little gum work because I'd sure like to take a look under your hood. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Just a stupid, <laughs> just a stupid thing, thing anyone could say. say. Yeah, Everett McGill is truly the comic relief of this show. I think he's funnier than Andy. <laughs> he, yeah, he's good. Well, he's a good actor too. He's, we'll he's see great. More of that. Yeah, I, I like him a lot. I think he's always good. Uh, yeah, another good throwaway line in this episode is Doc Hayward mm-hmm. uh, after Waldo dies. Yeah. Or no, is it? It's before, it's when they're setting out the tape recorder and they have yeah. the grapes. Uh-huh. Uh, it's either before or after, but basically takes away some grapes mm-hmm. and says, these grapes are just on the edge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're right on the edge. Yeah, which is, I love that because it's exactly the kind of weird thing people say all the time. You know, it's not self-consciously weird like Twin Peaks could get in the well, second just, season. It's just especially. such a thing yeah. when... Don't you? It's like a Seinfeld, but don't you? You know, what's the deal of the? I hate deal with it fruit? when grapes are right on the edge. Right, mm-hmm. or fruit in general. Mm-hmm. It's like it's ripe, and then it's not. Yeah. Yeah, right on the edge. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about? We are now on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at not about bunny, um, or you can send us an email at is Twin Peaks about the bunny, all one word, at gmail.com. So reach out, say hi, send us questions. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I'll point out that we have a pretty small audience at this point. So um, there's actually a good chance that if you uh, send us uh, a comment uh, that that we will read it. We're not reading any comments. Stop promising things to people. I'm not promising it, but I want this to be interactive. And I want to reward 
the brave souls who are like uh, on the frontiers of podcasting here. Yeah, that's true. By listening to our podcast. Yeah, get in on this pyramid scheme at the beginning. You don't want to be one of the suckers holding the bag at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, but seriously, um, right. You can send us an email about something we've talked about or just your own thoughts about uh, Twin Peaks or something you think we've missed. And, um, you know, I think potentially, uh, yeah, we will read some of these on the show, maybe do a bonus episode or... Um, you know, if we, if we start getting emails, we could read a couple off the top. If we, uh, it's, you know, if it's praising us and yeah, not insulting us. Right. You can keep your insults to yourself. <laughs> what I think. Uh, but yeah, that'll do it for this week. All right. Bye guys. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.